Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. We're here today on Miranda Warnings with David Dobbins, the COO of the Truth Initiative. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, the Truth Initiative is a scientific research and policy organization regarding the health impact of tobacco and tobacco regulations. Uh, prior to joining the Truth Initiative, David was part of the legal team that defended tobacco whistleblower Dr. Jeffrey Weigand from claims brought by Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company. Uh, so, uh, David, that case involving Jeffrey Weigand uh, from the 1990s uh, paved the way for tobacco litigation that was brought by state attorney generals throughout the country uh, later uh, that we're going to talk about a little bit. But tell us a little bit about that, uh, that case that got you started on this. It was, it was one of the very first things I worked on when I uh, started practicing law. I had been hired by a law firm in Washington, D.C., Shane Gardner, uh, which is now part of, uh, which has since merged with Goodwin Proctor. Um, worked with a couple of great attorneys there, John Aldock and uh, Laura Wertheimer, who were the lead attorneys in this case. And I was lucky enough to be one of the junior associates that, that got to help out. Um, it was an interesting case because it was extremely bare-knuckled. Um, Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company, which also no longer exists, uh, uh, had really come out strongly against Dr. Wygand, who had done some media interviews, had been on ABC News and on 60 Minutes, um, and the wrath of God was upon him. Uh, and it was interesting to, in the context of the day. I, I think, you know, it's it's harder to imagine this in 2019, but in the 1990s, there was still a lot of debate about the cigarette. What what place it should have in culture, really still continuing efforts by the tobacco industry to say it wasn't a dangerous product. It, it was in 1996 when the executives of the major tobacco companies uh, lined up uh, before Congress and swore uh, on oath that they did not believe that cigarettes caused lung cancer and they did not believe that cigarettes were addictive. Um, we know now uh, that they not only believed that cigarettes were addictive and caused lung cancer, they definitively knew it, as did their companies. Um, and covered it up. And completely lied about it. Um, th that was the subject of a later litigation uh, brought by the government, a piece of RICO litigation. And uh, just over the last two years, they've had to do corrective statements, essentially saying sorry for their lies. Um, I didn't know uh, when I first started that case, I would be interested in tobacco. It was just, it was just something sexy. It was a fun case for a junior associate to be on, and it was a fun case. Um, but it was through what we learned in cases like that one, through whistleblowers like Dr. Wygan, um, through the activity of the House of Representatives to do uh, oversight that the facade of the tobacco industry really began to crack, and that, of course, resulted in the. Uh, state attorneys general litigation um, that that you mentioned, uh, right? And um, it was that litigation actually. Just interestingly, um, two things happened. It, it was actually what ended 
the Wigan case, uh, Jeffrey Wigan, the Brandon Williamson claims against Jeffrey Wigan. Part of this settlement agreement was they dropped those claims. Um, and but one of the things that settlement agreement did was created a national foundation, and that's the foundation I work for today. So uh, that's the settlement with the various st- New York uh, state attorney generals, including New York's uh, at the time, that resulted in uh, an over six hundred billion dollar uh, settlement. That's right. And, and about two and a half billion of that was set aside to fund a national foundation that would do uh, exactly what you said, research, policy. But also we run a large public education campaign called the Truth Campaign that is designed to keep youth from uh, taking up tobacco use. And, you know, as you said, the, the case that really... Uh paved the way or the straw that broke the camel's back on this was the whistleblower, Dr. Jeffrey Wigand, who you were involved in representing. And that's also his interview and the whole process of him coming out and disclosing this uh, in in the interview on 60 Minutes was subject to a relatively famous movie some years ago called The Insider, uh, where Dr. Wigand was played by Russell Crowe. Yep. Um, and also included Al Pacino and Christopher Plummer, and your role was played by Al Pacino. Is that right? <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm afraid <laughs> the kid carrying the briefcase around didn't even get a uh, didn't even get an extra. So not <laughs> that, Al Pacino. That, that okay. But Al Pacino did a great job he in, did really in that well. movie. So, you know, I watched that movie, and then at the end of the movie, I watched the 60 Minutes interview. Uh, on YouTube, they you know replayed it with Mike Wallace, and uh, it was really fascinating. What a great job Russell Crowe did uh, in in playing uh, Jeffrey Wigand. You know, all his characteristics and mannerisms. I thought he did a tremendous job. I, I agree. I spent uh, I spent you know quite a bit of time actually with Dr. Wigand uh, during the course of that case. And when the movie came out, uh, I, it was pretty remarkable. Uh, Russell Crowe really inhabited that role. Did you ever happen to talk to Dr. Wigand about, you know, what he thought of the portrayal? Um, I don't recall uh, ever having that conversation. I did work for him a little bit after the uh, after the loss was over. I also did some intellectual property work when I was still uh, uh, in practice, uh, when I was still working for the firm. And he had done some foundation work, and we were working on getting, you know, some trademarks and some copyrights. And he's a great guy. He's he's still around today. I talked to him just uh, a few months ago. It, it seemed from from the portrayal, at least, that he had a very difficult time as a result of this coming out, uh, this whistleblowing, rather, uh, both in his personal life and his professional life. It was obviously a, a major part of his uh, changed his the the track of his career. And you can see that he was obviously a scientist, was hired in order to help make cigarettes safer and healthier. Uh, but apparently that wasn't didn't fit in with the marketing plan of uh, Brown and Williamson. I, I think it's very difficult. And of course, <laughs> the term whistleblower is in the news a lot. But I, I do think when people make a decision to stand up to power like that, there are often uh, prices to be paid. Um, I, I think it was a difficult decision for him, and I do think it was a difficult time in his life. I, I would recommend people 
watch that movie. It, it may be relevant for uh, for the times. Yes, as, yeah, it, it's relevant today. I, I agree. Um, but if it weren't for his uh, courage in coming and sp- speaking out when he did, uh, which was now over twenty years ago, uh, he he saved probably thousands, if not more lives. People are now aware of the dangers of uh, tobacco and over the last 20 years, in part because of his efforts and, and of course, the efforts of, of your organization, the Truth Initiative. We've seen a tremendous reduction in uh, tobacco use, uh, particularly in tobacco use amongst, uh, um, amongst minors. Well, it, this is a, an interesting um Question and it's an interesting moment in, in my job, what I do now, which is uh, help run this foundation and do the right. policy work around it. Um, when I started, the youth cigarette smoking r- rate was about 24%. Um, that same rate today is under 5%. Uh, one of our goals was to completely change the cultural context around cigarette smoking. And I think in in places, especially in places like New York, that have adopted strong policy measures to around trying to make that kind of cultural change, like taxation, like clean indoor air laws, um, like good point-of-sale restrictions. Um, cigarette re- The cigarette really has lost, for youth, that cultural cachet. Uh, and I'm very, very proud of that work. But at the same time, just in the last two or three years, we've seen a new product emerge on the market, and that's I know, just the you, e-cigarette. You were doing such a great job. We almost had it the whole thing beat, and now we've got the e-cigarettes and, and vaping. Right, right now, the percentage of kids that use e-cigarettes is higher than the percentage of kids that were using cigarettes when we started. Um, I think we're at a real moment here where if we act quickly and we respond with strong policy, we don't have to do a repeat of what happened with cigarettes, which was a decades, decades long struggle to bring those rates down. We should be acting quickly. And, and thankfully, New York is one of the uh, policy leaders on that. Right. And I'd like to talk about some of the regulations. But what you know, what we're seeing with with e-cigarettes and vaping is is sometimes the problems from it are apparent almost immediately. Uh, we don't have this thing, well, over the course of 40 years, I was smoking a pack a day and now I have lung cancer. Now we have people that, uh, for a variety of reasons, are having adverse health impacts within a matter of weeks uh, after after uh, e-cigarettes or vaping. It, it's, it's an interesting product, right? I mean, it's called an e-cigarette, and it really tempts you to say, how is this thing how dangerous is it compared to a cigarette? Cigarette, right. um, and they're similar in that they both uh, have bronchial intake of nicotine is the primary reason they exist. But how they affect the lungs, um, their toxicity, their carcinogenic, their uh, how how much they cause cancer, um, they're different. They're very different products, and the health effects are different. I, I think it's fair to say that. Uh, an e-cigarette is not as carcinogenic as a cigarette um, and exposes the user to fewer of the kind of toxins you would find in a cigarette. Uh, I don't think what's talked about as much is the unique dangers uh, of the e-cigarette. And of course, um, your lungs weren't designed to bring in foreign particles and to bring in drugs and serve as a drug delivery mechanism. They're designed and are actually quite delicate and designed to bring in air and bring in oxygen. I don't think we know 
what the long-term effects are going to be on kids. You're right. Some, we don't even know the short-term effects on what's going to happen to a lot of people. And I'm quite dismayed that we're allowing a giant science experiment, a, experiment to be conducted upon children in real time, which is what is happening. And, and, and this particular product is very attractive to uh, the youth, uh, teenagers and, and people in their 20s. Uh, some of the ancillary vaping or e-cigarette products uh, contain compounds that are also found in marijuana. So in addition to getting, you know, the uh, the nicotine high, you can get a like a, a marijuana high. Uh, and some of the companies also in their marketing are having flavored products, uh, fruity kind of uh, happy uh, type of uh, uh, delicious products. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Like that whole, the whole marketing of it uh, is is a little bit different than what we're seeing in in traditional tobacco. Right. We well, the products are marketed to kids. Um, the biggest e-cigarette brand uh, is Juul, and when Juul launched in uh, 2016, 2017, the launch was just like, you know launching any youth-directed brand. There were influencers, there were social media, there were launch parties, there were hashtags, there right. was Twitter, there were flavors, there was fruit medley, there was creme brulee. Um, the product is was designed, it's very small. I don't know if you've ever seen yes. one. It looks like a USB drive. Right. Um, Unlike previous generations of e-cigarettes, which are kind of big, boxy items that are pretty easy to see, these were really discreet, easy to hide. And you could keep it in your pocket, and there's no nothing gets lit up, That's so right. there's no smoke. There is a little, uh, you know, a little vape, but there's no smoke, and you could do it in a building and hardly anybody would know and they and that's exactly what happened and so so but here's the kicker um the company had reformulated the way it delivered nicotine so there was a formula called nicotine salts and still is um it delivers nicotine much much more quickly to your bloodstream it's highly addictive so what we're seeing is young people were attracted by the marketing and the flavors but they became addicted because of nicotine and frankly can use these products in ways you could never use a cigarette. You can't really smoke in your bedroom. Your parents are going to know right away. You can't smoke in the bathroom in school anymore because the somebody's going to know right away. Fire alarms, et cetera. Um, you can use this all day long. And we found kids that are highly addicted, that are having to wake up in the middle of the night, that can't make it through a class without leaving. We, we've talked to teachers who say it's really affecting their ability to teach when they have 20% of the kids in their classroom are jonesing for a drug, which is is literally what's happening. We, we actually at Truth Initiative have set up a, uh, a program for youth and young adults who are looking to quit. It's called um, This Is Quitting. You can get to it uh, on any mobile device if you go to thetruth.com. It'll tell you exactly where to go. And if you're a young person who's looking to, to quit or if you know a young person who's looking for support, they can go to thetruth.com and get that support they need to quit. That's great. That's great. Now, you're you're here at the New York State Bar Association's annual meeting. You're speaking on a panel by the Association's uh, Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Law uh, section about tobacco regulation. Uh, tell us a little bit about the regulation, the federal regulations that you're seeing uh, that are that are coming up that are uh, important. Well, one thing that happened in the 90s uh, is all this litigation was happening is that there was an effort at the FDA, the then FDA Commissioner David Kessler, 
said, I'm going to regulate tobacco under the FDA's powers. And they passed a rule that would have highly limited the marketing of, of tobacco products. There were plans in the future for doing things like reducing nicotine in cigarettes. Um, that case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, the FDA doesn't have power to regulate mm. tobacco. And by and large, except for the national uh, 18 age of purchase, um, the, the ban on television cigarette advertising, and um, the Surgeon General's warning on the packs of cigarettes, there's no regulation, federal regulation of tobacco at all, other than taxation. Um, in 2009, there was an act passed called the Tobacco Control Act. And what it requires is that products be reviewed before they go on to the market. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is that so far, that process has largely been a failure with respect to e-cigarettes. These products are all on the market illegally. None of them have been reviewed as required by the Tobacco Control Act. Um, as we talked about earlier, we don't know the short and long-term health effects. We know they're highly addictive. We know they're being sold to kids. Um, it, it was so alarming that in September uh, of, of 2019, there was a meeting in the Oval Office where the president, uh, the Health and Human Services Secretary, the head of the FDA, came out of the meeting and said, we are going to get rid of flavored e-cigarettes. This problem is intolerable. We know what a big fan the president is of whistleblowers also. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, uh, not a big one. <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, we were really hopeful. Like, wow, this is, uh, you know, this, they're actually talking um, some sense here. You know, unfortunately, what ended up happening is the policy became diluted and diluted and diluted as, as political people got involved. And, and now it's limited to only certain kinds of e-cigarettes. They allowed menthol flavors to, to stay on the market. And for um, the, the tank systems, the systems that you can refill instead of having pods, um, those can, are allowed to be sold anywhere in any flavor you want, tutti frutti. Um, strawberry shortcake. I saw one called Silly Rabbit. Tricks are for kids. I'm mm. sure the the cereal people are happy about things like that. Um, it's not going far enough. And of course, we're, right now in New York City is taking that action to get rid of all flavored e-cigarettes except uh, for menthol, which uh, we're we're still fighting them on. Uh, are hoping that they'll take action. So on. that's pending, right? And before the New York City Common Council has legislation, is that, that right? That's that's right, and and it's also being talked about at the state level. Right. Um, and the governor has uh, expressed interest in uh, getting rid of uh, flavored tobacco products uh, statewide. Uh, Massachusetts has done it. Uh, New Jersey's done it. New York has been both the city and the state has been a wonderful leader in tobacco control and, and some of the lowest youth uh, tobacco rates around because of their leadership. We hope they'll take leadership here also. So the legislation that they're talking about now goes towards the flavored of uh, e-cigarette and vaping products, but doesn't necessarily eliminate um, the other non like menthol flavored or, or traditional flavored traditional tobacco uh, right. flavors and those are just obviously just as harmful the the difference is they're not always necessarily targeted to the youth especially the tobacco flavor we see that um, kids at least so far have not been very attracted to that flavor uh, we're worried with menthol um, 
when these numbers started going up, when these youth numbers went up, Juul took its fruity flavors off of the market. But it kept its mint flavor. And we tracked Nielsen data. And if you look at that data, it, there was just an instant flip where mint, which had not been a very big market seg- segment, just jumped up immediately to replace the fruit flavors they had taken off the market. And what, what we're worried about is if you leave menthol on the market, it's still going to be the entry product for kids the way mint turned into the entry product for kids. And, and in fact, we know, we've known for decades that menthol cigarettes were the starter product for kids. That's where they'd start before they went to regular cigarettes. Um, I hope that's not the case, but that's really the danger of not uh, addressing menthol. Now, we've seen instances where people who have only been using the vaping products even just for a few weeks have had very severe lung problems requiring hospitalization, in some cases death. Uh, Is that because of the the excessive use or is it because of some of the kind of black market uh, cartridges that are uh, on the market? Over, uh, well over 85% of those cases involved, and you mentioned this earlier, THC vaping, yes. which is which is popular and which is something we're seeing increase also. Now that's um, got is, that's got to be illegal though, right? Well, it depends on your state. Okay, I see. Yeah. So in a state that permits sale of marijuana, so THC cartridges would be uh, they're, legitimate they're leg- and legal for sale. Yeah, they're, they're in states where the sale of, THC for recreational purposes and ready, really for medical purposes also. In many of those states, vaporizer right. systems exist for THC and THC oils. Uh, what it looks like happened is there were some uh, essentially black market products put on the market that used vitamin E acetate as um, the humectant. The, the, it, what happens when you use an e-cigarette is it is it heats up a, a solution and creates an aerosol. It's not like water vapor. Right. It's an aerosol. Like an oil, right? Like or, an oil, right. exactly. Um, most products use a, a vegetable glycerin, but these particular THC products use vitamin E acetate, and that turned out to be really dangerous. Mm. Now, what what we don't know is there, and the CDC has been very careful to say this, there, there may be some percentage of those people where they're just getting it from the vegetable glycerins. It's a much smaller percentage than the vitamin E acetate, which is clearly the big driver of the of the problem that panicked everyone. But there are still cases out there where people show up showing significant lung distress, and it really can't be explained away by THC use. So what would it be? That's the We don't, don't know. know. And, okay. the, and that what the CDC has said is we can't... Um, we really can't exonerate the cat the category. We know that, in particular, um, black market THC products are are much more dangerous. Don't use those. But if you're not a vapor, if you're not somebody who's used a tobacco product, don't do it. It's not right. good for you, and it isn't. And it's especially bad for kids. But but they do say, and I I think this is reasonable. Is it more or or, or less addictive than uh, an ordinary tobacco cigarette? E-cigarettes now, with nicotine salt, deliver tobacco, I mean, deliver nicotine about as effectively as a cigarette can. And as we talked about earlier, because they're much easier to use, um, you can use them discreetly, you can use them, some people use them indoors and you wouldn't even notice. Um, You can use a lot more, especially if you're a kid. Um, We've seen kids that essentially just 
used it nonstop throughout the day to the point where they even got sick. And, and FDA has reported cases of seizures. Right. So what do we, what's the next step here? What are we, what are we doing? I, I think because we've seen now at the federal level, I, I think they've gone as about as far as they're going to be willing to go, at least in the, in the current administration. Um, and your organization would be promoting just a complete ban. What we would do, what we would say is flavors should be taken off the market completely. There are regulatory pathways for approving these kind of products, and if you can show, if you can show it would be therapeutic for the treatment of addiction to a cigarette, like a, a nicotine patch or nicotine gum, right. you go through the cedar branch of the FDA, and you show that your product is safe and effective. And it's just like with every drug on the market, with patches, with gums, the manufacturer does the science, sponsors the product, goes through a, p a process with the FDA, and if they succeed in proving safe and effective, they can sell the product. Rather than shoot first and ask questions later, like, we're, like we're doing now. That's our problem. Right. And there's a pathway through the tobacco branch uh, where they could get into the market if they showed that the product, the standard, and I'll talk about this today, is appropriate for the protection of the public health. Um, two products have gone through that pathway so far. Um, one is a uh, low nitrosamine snooze product, which is dissolvable tobacco in a, in a pouch. No spit, uh, chew tobacco, essentially. And the other is a, a device manufactured by um, Philip Morris International, which heats tobacco. It's called ICOS. Um, have some problems with the ICOS approval, but, you know, at least it went through the process. At least they, they put science before the FDA, and at least they're in the regulatory um, channel in case we do see adverse effects or high youth uptake. The FDA can take quick action. With these cigarettes, just like you said, um, shoot first, ask questions later, and it's not working. The states can do something, and I, I really commend uh, the leadership the states have shown, and I hope that we'll see New York jo joining New Jersey and, and Massachusetts and acting to protect their kids. Right. Well, David, thank you very much for this fascinating uh, explanation of what's going on with tobacco and vaping. Uh, thank you for being on Miranda Warnings with us. Thank you for the work that you were doing and are continuing to do with the, with the Truth Initiative. Uh, we have a feature here on Miranda Warnings that's a little bit lighthearted. This is a very serious topic, but we have a feature called uh, Music Book or Movie where you can share you know, any sort of artistic performance that's important to you. We already talked about The Insider. Uh, can be related to this or, or something else. I'll give you a, a non-tobacco uh, piece of art that I'm thinking about right now, um, but I think it, it really relevant for the time. Um, I'm lucky enough to have kids in high school, and my okay. my son is currently in his AP uh, language class, and they're doing the the band book section. Uh, and he's like, "Well, which one of these should I read?" And uh, Catch Twenty Two by Joseph Heller was mm. one of the books. I hadn't read it for about 20 years and I was like man I love this when I read it Jack let's just sit down and have you know like a book club with us and, and rereading it now it's just as funny it's just as acidic it's it's it, it, it still asks the questions about how can a cynic be optimistic that Joseph Heller raised so well and I think are are extremely potent questions in our current political environment I'd recommend everybody pick it up and even if you don't have the sun to read it with
Right, Catch-22, obviously uh, timeless. Uh, your work, obviously, is also uh, very timeless as well. Thank you. Uh, David, thank you so much for being on Miranda Warnings. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISVA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.